There is a lot of Star Wars talk in my house these days. Our family is a mix of sort of full-blown fans and burgeoning ones, and also one person who doesn't really care much for the series at all. I'll let you guess who that might be. <laughs> we have books and posters and t-shirts around and lots of conversation about the story and its characters. It's sort of a perpetual theme in our house. So I hope you'll forgive me but I can't help but hear the Exodus story just a little bit through that lens right now. I mean, Moses isn't exactly Luke Skywalker, but he is a young man minding his own business in a remote, dusty settlement out in the middle of nowhere when one day a cry for help emerges from a very unlikely source. And Pharaoh isn't exactly Darth Vader, but he is a power-hungry tyrant, deaf to the cries of those who are suffering, who will stop at nothing to get what he wants. And the Egyptian taskmasters aren't exactly stormtroopers, but they are pawns of their master, brutally enforcing the will of the regime. And the plagues aren't exactly deep space battles, but they are attacks against Pharaoh's empire, meant to break down his defenses and bring about a new and more equitable future. Once you get started with this, it's a little hard to stop. I know it's not a perfect analogy, and I apologize if you're not a Star Wars fan, but stick with me just for a moment here. Because so far in the book of Exodus, the action has been clipping along at a pace to rival any Star Wars movie. The story begins with storm clouds of oppression gathering on the horizon as this new pharaoh takes power in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Through the courage and ingenuity of several women, a hero is born and saved from harm right under the nose of the king. He grows and stumbles along without much direction and finds himself lost and aimless in the wilderness. He's called by God to a task he could never have imagined, a task that demands resources of courage and faith he doesn't know he has. With, new with newfound power and confidence and a magical staff that is, I'm sorry, just a little bit like a lightsaber, <laughs> he journeys to Egypt and stands up to the king with a single clear demand. Let my people go. The king digs in his heels, and so Moses proclaims one plague after another, assault after assault on the absolute power of Pharaoh over the lives of the Israelites. Nine attempts to get his attention and convince him that his oppressive rule must end and liberation must come for the Israelites. Pharaoh will have none of it. His defense shields appear impenetrable. The fate of the people remains deeply uncertain. There's drama here and suspense and great characters and a struggle between good and evil. It's no wonder Hollywood has taken more than one crack at bringing this to the big screen. But right here is where the Star Wars parallels officially break down. Because when, when Luke and the other brave resistance fighters finally reach their darkest hour and make their last desperate attack on the Death Star with the fate of the galaxy in their hands, the action doesn't suddenly pause for a recipe. But that's pretty much exactly what happens in the book of Exodus. We interrupt this harrowing story to bring you some very important instructions. Each family is going to need to buy a lamb. And don't worry if you can't afford one. Your neighbor should share. Be sure there's a portion for each person. No one should be left out. Roast the lamb. Don't eat it boiled or raw. For side dishes, serve bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Eat quickly. Don't leave any waste. Clean up well after you're through. It was all action and adventure before, 
But here in Exodus 12, there is no doubt that this is not your ordinary epic. Here it becomes clear that the Exodus story is meant to be much more than just entertaining. We've, of course, arrived at a pivotal moment in the story, at the tenth and final plague brought on Egypt. It's this particularly devastating one, the death of the firstborns, that finally gets through Pharaoh's defenses and leads him to set the Israelites free. After decades of hard labor and violence and oppression, after pleas and demands for justice, after nine miraculous plagues that were met only with hardness of heart, this is the night when the tables will finally turn for the people and the long journey of freedom will begin. It's maybe the pivotal moment in the story. And so the book of Exodus pauses the action right here to say, remember. This shall be a day of remembrance for you. It says at the close of our reading today, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand, Moses will say to the people just a little bit later. That is really the key word here, remember. We use that word all the time, of course. We need to remember the words on the list for the spelling test at school. We need to remember the new door code for our apartment building. We need to remember to pick up the ingredients for the recipe. We need to remember to send in our ballots and vote. We do need to remember that. The way we use that word usually has everything to do with our minds, with thinking of particular items on a list or holding on to important facts and information. But the way the Bible uses that word goes way beyond this purely cerebral activity. When God promises to remember the covenant that God makes with the people, that doesn't mean that God simply won't forget the particulars of what was agreed. It means God will honor that commitment, that God will stay faithful and true, that God will be trustworthy. Remembering is about fidelity, about relationship. So when Moses says here, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, he doesn't just mean write down the date and be sure not to forget it. He means hold on to what this day means. Hold this day dear to your heart. Tell your children about it. Let this story be your own. Let this story be your story. That's the kind of remembering that's called for here. And because it's about more than just your mind, because it's also about your body and your heart, and your spirit, it helps to have a ritual. The celebration of Passover, briefly described in our reading today, is an, ancient, is an ancient ritual of just this sort of remembering. You probably know that the Passover meal celebrated by Jewish people throughout the centuries is rich with symbolism. Unleavened bread brings to mind the haste with which the Israelites had to prepare to leave their homes in Egypt. Bitter herbs signify the bitterness of life under slavery. Salt water is a reminder of the slave's tears. A mixture of apples and nuts and wine symbolizes the mortar the people were forced to use in Pharaoh's building projects. A green vegetable represents new life. The items there on the table in this celebration tell the story, and the community that keeps this ritual makes that story its own. 
That's what good and meaningful rituals do. Help a community to remember in the fullest sense of that word. The Gospels have a moment like this, too. A moment where right at the climactic moment of the story, a ritual creeps in. It is Passover, of course, this very festival of liberation when Jesus is with his disciples for a last meal. He passes around bread and wine, enough for everyone, inviting his friends, even the one about to betray him and the one about to deny him, to eat and drink. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. There's that word again. In Jesus's voice here, remembrance certainly means more than remember my name or remember facts about me. It means hold on to me. Recommit to following in my footsteps. Let my life be at work in you. Let this story of sharing, of grace, of forgiveness, of self-giving love be your story. That's what we're meant to open ourselves to every time we share bread and wine with one another, every time we come to the communion table. Do this in remembrance of me. I noticed something in this section of Exodus this time around that I had never noticed before. A little after our reading, when Moses is giving instructions about the Passover celebration to the people, he specifically tells them that they are to keep this observance when they find themselves at home in the Promised Land. In that new and very different context, where they will be free and settled and secure, that's where they're commanded particularly to remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, to keep making the story of liberation their own. Moses knows something important here. He knows that it is in settings of privilege and ease that we are perhaps most likely to forget. Prosperity breeds amnesia, says Walter Brueggemann, and so the Bible calls its hearers to remember. When you are free, Moses says to the Israelites, remember what it was like to be a slave. When you are in charge, remember what it was like to work under cruel taskmasters. When you are settled, remember what it was like to be strangers in a foreign land. Let that story continue to shape you and your living. Do not forget your story and do not forget the God who liberates. That's how Moses speaks to his community, perched there on the edge of freedom. And it's an important word for us as well, because maybe it's particularly in our experiences of privilege that we most need to remember. To remember that the God we worship is one who hears the cries of those who are oppressed, who knows them and feels them deeply. To remember that liberation for those suffering is always God's work and by extension, always work that we are called to as well. To remember Jesus, who gives himself for the world and who keeps calling us to follow. So friends, in this season and in every season, we keep telling the story of God's faithfulness and love. We keep sharing it with our children and with each other. We keep coming back to the table where there is room for all we open our lives to the story once again. We remember.
Thanks be to God. Amen.